this is the Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Richard Whitaker about the nature of aesthetic thought, the connection of numinous and artistic expression, and the exquisite sensitivity of the human instrument when unmediated by conceptual association. Richard Whitaker is the co-founder with Rue Harrison of the nonprofit Society for the Recognition of Art and founding editor in 1998 of the magazine Works in Conversations. Earlier, he founded The Secret Alameda, published from 1990 to 1996. He is also the West Coast editor of Parabola magazine. Although Whitaker has a background in philosophy and clinical psychology and has done graduate work at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, his connections with art go back over 40 years, including photography, ceramics, painting, and sculpture. In answer to the question of why he started an art magazine, Richard says, A central motivation was my dismay at what I found missing in the art world as I began exploring it in 1980, before I'd simply done art on my own. Nowhere did I find any resonance in the writing of critics and art theorists for what Bruce Nauman expressed with considerable ambivalence in an early piece, quote, The true artist helps the world by expressing mystic truths. Such an elevated thought could not be taken seriously in 1980. In 1967, the ground for such a proclamation was already very shaky. Was it a joke? And yet my own experiences in the face of beauty, especially of light, were such that I felt compelled to find a way of honoring them. Surely the experience of the presence of the numinous had not gotten old. It had only gone missing somehow. What I found lacking in art world discourse was not difficult to find when I turned to artists themselves. A common understanding was often near at hand, and here was the material I wanted to help get into circulation through the public space of a magazine. Since then, my focus has widened to include broader examples of the transformative power of creativity used in the service of a greater good. This possibility is not limited to artists. A.K. Kumaraswamy's formulation, taken from his study of traditional societies, puts it well. The artist is not a special person, but each person is a special kind of artist. Richard Whitaker, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. It's great to have you on, and uh, I will begin with our um, typical first question for our for the occasion when we're um, uh, speaking for the first time to a guest, and that is to invite you to cast your memory back to youth and childhood, and ask you to focus on any incidents or memories that come up um, that, in retrospect, you would point to and say ah, that was a precursor, that was a harbinger of the direction that my life would take with regard to philosophy, spiritual practice, etc. So uh, have at it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's a question I like to ask people as well. Um, no, I was thinking about that because of our earlier conversation and um, and. It, 
and I sometimes ponder that same question, what are the roots of what I'm doing today? And the memory that comes up for me, the, the first memory that seems to relate is remembering that when I was probably five years old, maybe six years old, looking at my marbles on my, I kept them on my little bureau in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how I got started with marbles. I don't know if you ever played marbles. That's uh, something that you, you got to be a certain age to have played marbles as a kid. <laughs> I think we are of that age. Indeed. Um, and I had my favorites, and I would look at some of these uh, my favorite marbles, and uh, it was it was. Um, I mean, in in, in grown-up language, I, I was just transported by the beauty of what I was looking at. And I um, another memory that is is related comes from when I lived in Mullins, West Virginia. I lived in three different places in West Virginia when I was a kid. A little town called Mullins in the Appalachian Mountains coal mining community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a little apartment upstairs, apartment somewhere, and I saw this, uh, I thought I, I caught a glimpse of something absolutely magical outside the window, and I ran over to the window and it was gone. I didn't know what it was, and then it was back. And it was hovering right by the window. And I didn't know, what the heck is that thing? It was a hummingbird. And its wings were, of course, going so fast. It didn't look like a regular bird. It seemed a little bit bigger than a moth. And um, I I was absolutely uh, mesmerized. It was so magical and so miraculous. And I wanted that thing. I wanted that miracle. I wanted somehow to have it. <laughs> so those are two memories that come to mind that uh, I would say speak to uh, beauty. And, and with the hummingbird, it's living beauty, mysterious, magical beauty. And there, there are other other memories that come along. I don't know if, if either of you were close observers of cars back in the 50s, but uh, for some reason I was a careful observer of different cars. And uh, the 1953 Lincoln was, I thought, pretty close to perfection. The uh, 52, as I recall, the taillights weren't quite right, but the 53, they got the taillights just right. And uh, that kind of thing, um, that sort of discriminating eye for design, it wasn't any, it was just something that um, I don't know where I got it, but that kind of, um, attention to certain details, so aesthetically speaking, those things, uh, those things are precursors. Those things are 
the early signs of a kind of sensitivity to visual beauty. And uh, those are those are some some early ones. Thank you. A uh, uh, number of things come up uh, in response to that. Um, one of them is is this um, is my question about you're feeling some you're feeling drawn you're feeling pulled towards something and i'm wondering if that feeling of being drawn um, as you grew grew older was reactivated in other words were, was there could you say that there was a pattern uh, um, that you might identify mm -hmm. over time mm -hmm. That you um, that you that you saw activated in yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the answer is yes, in a word. But the thing that was was missing was that uh, there wasn't a, a framework for it. There wasn't a conscious idea about it. It was mm -hmm. uh, when I was uh, my family moved a lot. By the time I was twelve years old. The, family had moved 12 different times. Wow. So uh, over those, from the years of when I was five, some of my earliest memories, four maybe, five until I was 12, my family moved to uh, Southern California when I was 12 years old. Um, all along the way, there were moments where I found myself attracted to Maybe a garden, uh, like I said, some, some cars. Uh, growing up some of the time in West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and my father being a bit of a hunter, um, he'd go out with his shotgun and his beagle and he would shoot a rabbit and my mother would cook the rabbit. We would have rabbit for dinner. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole culture of guns and hunting. My father was a mining engineer, but he did have that fishing hunting thing. So um, I would pour over catalogs, Weatherby rifles, Weatherby made these rifles, and I would carefully look at these rifles, and some of them were, to my eye, just extremely beautiful. I had electric trains, but I had to have just the exact right um, engine for it. Uh, we had uh, Norfolk and Western steam engines that would run within sight of our house, these giant coal hauling engines. And um, certain engines I thought were just right and others weren't quite as just right. When I got to uh, Southern California in sixth grade, uh, we would get assignments here and there that interested me, like um, we were studying early California history and the uh, Spanish-Mexican influences and serapes, and one of our assignments was to, to make a little serape, a little drawing of a serape. It's a thing you throw over your shoulders, and I was quite intrigued by that, uh, quite attracted to the uh, coming up with the visual design and creating a little geometric pattern. And uh, then in junior high, we had a little art class, and I enjoyed that a lot. So 
those are examples of the kind of continuation of that. But, you know, as a kid, you just, you're drawn and you go there. But I, I didn't really think, oh, that means I'm an artist. You know, it didn't, of course, no concept like that occurred to me. Uh, but, and, you know, it continued uh, through high school in a different way. I was thinking about this subject um, since we talked and you were asking if I had examined the, uh, how my aesthetic sense might have developed and, and how it might have led me in the direction I've gone. And um, I got involved in surfing a little bit in Southern California. Have either of you surfed? Yes, but not much. A little well, bit. Enough I, to fall off. Well, I never got to be an accomplished board surfer, but you don't really have to be to, to experience the beauty of the ocean and the incredible, uh, ah, that siren call of the beauty of the, the swells rising and the mm -hmm. possibility of riding a wave. I mean, it is just such a profound and beautiful experience. And I think that's also connected with all this. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things touch the emotion somehow, and, and especially surfing, I found. I, I did a lot of body surfing. Mm. I got pretty good at it. Uh, not, not as good as board surfing, but good enough, you know. And um, so... I'm sure there's other threads to this to this uh, question, but those things are kind of writ large. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess you know, just to frame it for our listeners, um, what I found instantly interesting about your work uh, with uh, 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 works and conversations is the um, which is the, the magazine um, that you've been publishing for a while now is the sense that that you have number one you you find quirky interesting um sort of off the beaten path sorts of uh uh questions that you ask interesting people um and and it seems to me to point to the connection of the aesthetic and spiritual practice or or longing or development so that's kind of what I, you know what what i'm you know the first topic i, I really want to uh, explore with you in our conversation today because you know um i a, a friend of ours a, a, a teacher in the tibetan tradition ken mcleod has often used the example of an artistic sensibility to point to a lot of the features that profound spiritual practitioners develop. It's not the same and the overlap, you know, the Venn diagram is not a hundred percent overlap, but it's very, it can be very strong. Interesting. And, um, and so, and so that's why I'm interested in, in your discussion of, of, of these of these things that that felt right to you or looked right to you 
because surely, uh, for example, it's not just looking right if you're surfing. It must be also, I'm imagining, your bodily sense of something feeling on or right oh, yeah. or resonant. Talk about that, if you will. Hmm. Well, that's a beautiful question. I mean, surfing is certain, certainly the whole package, the body, the feeling. I guess the mind is in there as well. <laughs> certainly scanning the horizon and, and watching the waves. And uh, I mean, the heart sings. Mm. The heart sings. Um, you know, I sort of jump sort of to a, 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 I sort of jump from your question to a thing. It isn't quite, doesn't, doesn't seem to quite fit your question, but I think it does. And that is the difficulties I felt early on with the magazine when I began to discover that what moved me and what really spoke to me and which I wanted to honor was not being recognized or honored in the art world per se. Mm -hmm. When I say art world, I'm speaking about it's sort of the equivalent to the uh, academic English department, the official, you know, the official uh, establishment. The interpreters. You know. Uh, <clears throat> the taste setters. <laughs> so the gatekeepers, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think you guys, I can try to run this by you guys without uh, worrying about it, but, you know, the French post-structuralists, Derrida, Leotard, uh, people like Foucault. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a huge, huge influence in the uh, academic world, especially the English departments, by these these uh, philosophers. I can, I can tell you also in anthropology. Oh, also? Okay. Um, yeah, so that would be, uh, who's the guy? Who's the guy in anthropology, the sort of structuralist, the guy? He's a famous guy. Uh, Levi-Strauss, yeah, 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 that's the one. Uh, well, the art world was influenced by all this and, and um, deconstruction, you know, and um, cultural relativism and uh, the uh, influence of power on epistemology, etc. And that all gets run into the art world. Hmm. My experience was to be... I mean, I didn't start out to try to be an artist, but what drew me on was this uh, responsive uh, feeling, the, um, the response of my heart, to put it in very common terms. And uh, so I discovered that the art world didn't uh, honor this at all. I mean, there was uh, the art world was about something rather sophisticated and something that you needed to have an education and a very specific education in order to, uh, to enter. So, um, so I was at odds early on when I discovered that, uh, what, what drew me on was not something that was being written about and was not being celebrated. And, uh, affirmed that may that makes that resonates uh for me um 
I've I've been fascinated and have been a reader of science fiction since I was probably seven years old. And um, for many years, the academic and and the, the New York literary scene would entirely dismiss any science fiction writer, period. Later, that became less true, but still there, there remains a sort of uh, haughty dis, uh, um, disrespect <laughs> yeah. in, a lot of, in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. And, 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 and so, so I came to understand um, that, that an awful lot of, I mean, this would be true in many, in many different fields of art, artistic endeavor, but it would be, it's true, I think, that, that there come to be, that's the, word, the, the phrase I used earlier, the taste centers. And they're the, they're the sometimes described as, uh, as like uh, mandarins who, um, who, who tell other people what they're supposed to like. Yeah. And be yeah. drawn to. Yeah. And you're, and you're doing something quite different. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about your uh, science fiction. Who were some of your favorites, if I might ask you? Ursula Krober Le Guin. Uh, cer- certainly, that's she's she would be my my favorite <laughs> of all time. In fact, recently I've gotten into her poetry as well, and I found some of her, her a couple of her late books of poetry uh, incredibly. Uh, wonderful from many I mean it's not just a single tone you know I'm thinking of uh, really f- funny short poems and then profound as she became increasingly ill in her last years she only died a couple of years ago huh. uh, as she became increasingly ill she, she had profound meditations on on the the growing incapacity of her body mm. uh, to be comfortable in the world, mm. and um, and um, in in her science fiction, she um, you know as the as the daughter of the person Alfred Krober who started the anthropology department at UC Berkeley where I got my PhD, um, I felt. I didn't know that when I first started reading her. She's course, the daughter of Krober? Yes, Alfred Krober. Oh, wow. Uh, Le Guin. She married oh. Le Guin. Okay. She was, she was the daughter of Alfred Krober and Theodora Krober, <laughs> who wrote uh, Ishi in Two Worlds. Oh, my gosh. Alfred Krober's wife. Wow. So, um, so she's, she's uh, far and away my favorite uh, science fiction writer. I could talk about her forever. But um, uh, I mean, there are there are certainly plenty of other ones, good in good in different ways. But she was the most rounded human being and thinker that that I can point to in that in that realm in that world. I haven't read her, but I have absorbed an aura which I in, intuitively f- feel is a a, a good. I mean, I trust my intuition. It's kind of amazing, but. Mm-hmm. For me, Le Guin must be one of those people. Uh, but I do remember a few, and I can't quote the, the titles of these things, but uh, in my early teenage years, 13, I was reading some science fiction, and I, too, 
loved some of those books. Some of them are very beautiful that I read, had beautiful visions, very wonderful. So I, I just was curious. Uh, and anyway, that's astonishing that she's and was married to Krober, Krober Hall at UC Berkeley, right? That's it. <laughs> and her, I also, uh, I mean, I wasn't really acquainted with, with her daughter, but her daughter is a uh, an accomplished uh, cellist, and, oh, and and got a PhD in musicology, and I think she teaches at uh, I can't remember uh, Southern California oh, someplace. Yeah. I can't remember, but anyway, um, but I've seen her perform in many occasions. I got a chance to meet Le Guin a couple of times briefly. How lovely! Um, uh, but so, uh, so I wanted to ask a question. Kind uh, uh, of bridges the terminology I've heard in the uh, anthropology, and, I'm, and you'll have to correct me if I get them wrong. But it's the distinction between uh, is it etic and emic? Etic. Etic. Yeah. Etic and emic. It's, it's, mm -hmm. And it's and it's the distinction is like, and I think about this with anthropologists when they look at a, an indigenous people and they want to talk about the. Uh, uh, let's say the the religion or the spiritual practice that um, I think it's the etic etic that's is, the analytical is the analytical or sort of the, the exterior where you'll you'll talk about about it and contextualize it and uh, from the outside from the outside and it's typically uh, uh, you know they don't think of it this way but it's typically taking a Western mindset and uh, using that language to uh, explain what's going on but the uh, emic is within the context of the people who are actually in the religion or in the spiritual practice and it's their lived experience and you can speak about it that way and you can speak about it within the language it's uh that the people themselves would speak about it and this and this distinction comes up in what i the what i see you drawing with uh, works and conversations uh, as you know there there was plenty of edic conversation about art Yes, uh, but what was missing was the emic uh, conversation, or sort of like the experience of the artist and what what in the language of the artist is actually going on. And suddenly, there there's a language of a rich language of feeling, which is uh, defies uh, intellectual categorization. And and I'm wondering, does that does that distinction kind of uh, start to capture what this this uh, gap that you were seeing that you thought to close. Yes, absolutely. It's <clears throat> that's beautiful. I love the way you've you've uh, pointed that out. I completely uh, relate to what you've just described, and very much on the antique side of it. In fact, uh, I didn't really read the whole essay by Roland Barthes, "The Death of the Author," mm -hmm. but that's one of the big ones apparently that opened the door to. Instead of the artist being having the uh, instead of looking to the artist for an account of the work, now you you could look to the expert, mm -hmm. and the expert was who was who was respected. The artist no longer could be counted on to give you any particularly privileged information about it. Well, I object to that. Yeah, uh, that is absolutely wrong. And, uh, yes, I certainly, uh, the magazine is entirely from the point of view of, uh, person who, who comes at it from, through the experience, not from the theory. 
Well, it's, this is interesting because it, it's just reminded me on, the, on, our, on our podcast, you know, we've often spoken with people who, uh, who talk about how religious practices and texts from antiquity um, have been reinterpreted over time. So, uh, as, you, as you say, the idea of authorship is itself only maybe 800 years old or so. I'm talking about not just, not just um, literary texts, but musical scores right. and that sort of thing. In other words, you don't get, I mean, that's why Anonymous is such a prolific composer. Uh, and, yeah. and author, <laughs> yeah. because because we don't know the names of people. It wasn't something that people recorded or thought thought it was appropriate to mention or yeah. interesting to mention. Yeah, and I'm and I'm linking that in my mind with the um, that shift to authorship happens about the same time that that. I think in in Western thought, in Western European thought, we start to get um, a shift away from an understanding of of, of metaphor in um, religious texts, and we get a literalism, a literal interpretations of, say, the Bible, for example, and. And the further we go towards, our, towards, you know, through the 20th century, the more true that becomes. Uh, so, so, um, but a, a figure like uh, Gurdjieff was notable because he pointed out that, in fact, the literal interpretation is almost never um, the best or most interesting. Well, yeah, the, the allegorical interpretation. He, he asserted um, was often the important thing. Right. Uh, it, more to the point that the modern mind was degraded to the degree that it was no longer capable of actually experiencing or understanding allegory, Yeah. but, but could only relate to uh, information from a literal point of view. Right. And so, and so when you're pointing out uh, 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 the, the author being, um, relegated to obscurity by the uh, um, expert mm -hmm. that's, that it's it's I'm seeing a sort of continued narrow narrowing over time of interpretation so an allegorical interpretation um, uh, rather than a literal interpretation is a broader it, it draws on broader sources when we start to get um, specific authorship um, that's a narrowing, and then down to the so-called expert is a further narrowing. I don't know yeah. if this resonates for you at all. Oh yeah, no, it does. It absolutely resonates. My wife happens to um, be reading. Last night we were, she was reading from a book about Jakob Bami. We're sitting mm -hmm. there, and uh, it's, it's. Uh, you know, I take it back. She was thinking, but no, this was a book about. Uh, Giordano Bruno, ah. a scholarly book, mm -hmm. well-written, and I asked her to read me a little bit because she was going to read, and I was in the living room. I said, why don't you read out loud? 
So she's reading it. It's a well-written book, scholarly, and starts to talk about hermeticism and how in Giordano Bruno's time, hermeticism was, uh, there was some very mistaken ideas about its source. It was thought that the sources of hermetic philosophy went way back, uh, way back into Egypt, when in fact they were mostly uh, Neoplatonic and Platonic uh, writings uh, from the second, first, second, and third century A.D., and uh, they had a lot of sway back in, I don't know, the 1500s maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, the Hermetic writings uh, sort of, as I recall, celebrated the idea that the real, the real knowledge was in deep antiquity. And, mm-hmm. and it was a scholarly thing. There was a, a slight tone. It wasn't too, uh, it wasn't too explicit or, strident but there was a slight tone that we we know better now and we understand the errors of the ways in other words we are smarter we know more and our ancestors the dummies kind of theory Mm -hmm. but i thought i was thinking as she was reading that what nothing has changed in theory i mean a human being in the uh, let's say 500 BC uh, might well experience um, a moment of deep connection uh, in him or herself with with uh, the whole of oneself, and this kind of thing. Um, I I would hazard to think that this kind of thing doesn't get old. That you don't make progress <laughs> and suddenly you uh, because you're like now a thousand years forward in time. Now your moment of presence has extra qualities to it that it didn't have in theory in your own day. In other words, it, it's probably as true today as it was a thousand years ago that there was and there were people 2,000 years ago who, who understood something about coming into a fuller connection with themselves as whole beings or becoming more present to the reality of existence, let's say. Anyway, it was just the whole tone of the thing, gentle tone in this book that um, I was just struck by, I guess you could say it's the perennial philosophy. What was true a thousand years ago, if we're lucky, we, we we might be fortunate enough to experience today. Uh, but if we don't experience it, it's just a, it's a mental thing. We don't, there's, seems to be a, seems to be a gap that cannot be crossed by thought. You either yeah. have the experience or you, 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 there's hardly any point in even saying what it's like. This is, uh, very relevant for me right now because I've been, upping the, the degree to which I study with my shakuhachi teacher, which is the Japanese bamboo flute. Uh-huh. And he'll have directions, very meticulous directions for how, how to play and how to activate muscles and things like that. And if I do it from my mind, it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and And so a lot of the practice and the feedback I get will be, when I'm doing it right and when I'm not. And so that I get this uh, 
embodied experience of when it works and when it doesn't work and when and uh, a more subtle sensitivity to when the mind is thinking it's doing something to when uh, a happening is taking place over the field of the body that uh, has the effect of opening myself as a container for something higher to move through me. Yeah, yeah. Who is your teacher? Uh, his name is Masayuki Koga. Do you know Koga Murata? I don't. You know of him? No. Oh my goodness. Well, there's a there's a guy up your way, uh, and I, his name is just out of reach, who's quite accomplished uh, shakuhachi flute guy, and uh, he's he's friends with Koga Murata. Koga Murata, uh, there's a book called uh, A Different Kind of Luxury. Oh yeah. We know that uh, author very well. In fact, he's spoken in our radio uh, about that book in our in bookstore. our spiritual bookstore. Yeah, Andy Couturier. Yeah. Right. No, well, he writes about this, this guy. You would you you may have read this passage in his. He has a chapter devoted to Kogan Mirada. I think. Yeah. I oh, then probably we have read. Probably, it, probably it, read it's that probably years ago. Ten or fifteen years ago, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well. I think it's worth just uh, uh, pausing on that for a moment because the thing that I love that book, it's a wonderful book, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Burata himself seemed to to have been uh, a real live one, uh, a guy hungry to to live, really live, and he traveled and he did a lot of things, but he eventually came back to Japan and uh, was attracted to uh, a flute record and he sought out the flute teacher and this is a master who um a flute teaching master and this is a bigger flute it's, it's a, i don't know if it's a it's a big big flute it's really hard to play it's and uh so the uh the teacher just told him go out and cut a piece here's what it looks like go find some bamboo and make one mm -hmm. uh, anyway he he uh, it's a long story but eventually Eventually, he made his way to playing this flute. And uh, now he says he plays pretty much all day, every day. And there's only something like 20 different songs in this tradition. Hmm. And he plays two or three of them. And he is just happy. And it just give, fills him with joy. And... Um, I interviewed Andy, and I said, um, well, Andy, that must be incomprehensible to us folks in the West. How could how could a musician play the same thing over and over and over, week in, week out, and it would still make him happy? This is absolutely incomprehensible. Uh, and I'm laughing because Rob is, as a listener, has experienced this as my... For, for over 20 years... <laughs> uh, Koga Sensei, Stuart's teacher, has focused on what, by most standards, would be an extraordinarily restricted repertoire. Which yeah. he, occasionally he'll add a piece here and there because he writes as well as you does traditional stuff. In fact, uh, you're reminding me. Um, so Stuart and another and other students have gone with Koga Sensei to do uh, concerts in Japan, and I've gone with. You know, basically because I want to go to Japan, but also to <laughs> carry stuff occasionally to help out, et cetera. 
and one of uh, we were we were in this beautiful Zen temple in southern Japan last year, in fact, almost exactly a year ago. Um, and so the performance was going to take place in the main uh, meditation hall, but but um, but you know Stuart and 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 his uh, other colleague were in this other area uh, where I was, and they were sort of warming up and you know, uh, and the student, Stuart stepped out and the steward says to me, um, how, how can you listen to these, to the same pieces over and over and over? My wife banishes me to the garage. <laughs> she can't stand it. And I said, well, I mean, the first few years, I'll, I'll have to admit that's, that's kind of how I responded to it. But, but then I, then I, then I said, but you know, even though I'm not putting full attention on it an awful lot of the time, I'll be doing other stuff around the house and, and Stuart's playing the shakuhachi and same tunes over and 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 over again. And um, what I find myself doing is tuning my ear to hear the subtle differences that I know his teacher, because I've, I've seen a lot of their lessons together. I've heard what, what he's trying to do. And even though I don't embody it, I, I've gained a sensitivity in my hearing, uh -huh. hearing differences. Uh -huh. there, you know, many people would consider them subtle. Yeah. But, um, but it's, be, it's become true for me that I don't, it's not that I, I don't mind it at all. In fact, sometimes there will be this ringing moment of purity and perfection, kind of like what you were describing about your visual sense at times when you were a kid. Yeah. Where it's, oh, that was just right on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that, so that feature is very yeah. important, I think. And, and that's, that's exactly it. Playing the same thing over and over again. It's never the same. Mm. In fact, uh, uh, I was doing a lesson yesterday and a lot of the focus of the lesson was to vary the movement and the articulation, like of what the tongue's doing, the tension in the body constantly to vary it, keep it uh, moving and changing so that uh, it's never the same. He says, because as soon as it's the same, the audience will just, they'll, they won't be conscious of this, but they'll have the sense that they figured it out. And then they'll, dis they'll disengage. Whereas when it's, when it's alive, it's like looking at a stream or something like that. You know, it's like constantly moving and shifting and you can't put your finger on it. That's, yeah, that's interesting. That, that reminds me that uh, as a young guy, maybe even in high school, I was, was arrogant. I thought, these people are idiots, you know. I mean, uh, God, idiots. <laughs> but I've since become pretty humble. It was, uh, I think it was Agnes Martin who I, uh, Revere as as uh, one of the most penetrating writers about art. She was an artist, but she she didn't write much. But what she wrote was is priceless. And she said, "You can't imagine how sensitive people are." Well, and in my arrogance as a young guy, I couldn't imagine how insensitive they were. Right. And uh, <laughs> but what you said, Stuart, is interesting because it absolutely would confirm what. Agnes Martin understood 
you can't imagine how sensitive people are. You said once it's the same, people stop listening. They're not conscious that they're not conscious of that, but something felt it. Wouldn't you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I had that discovery uh, myself because I did go through a master's program in clinical psych, uh, got a master's in 80, 1989. And part of the master's degree, you've got to do psychotherapy with people in the clinic. If someone comes in and they want help and you sit there and you try to practice what you've learned. And I, uh, one of my strongest impressions is how if I wasn't quite, and often I was quite nervous because I didn't, it was new and it was a little bit anxiety provoking. And if there wasn't the right something in me, that person wouldn't come back. And I understood from direct experience that that person, un, you know, not consciously, but got it, that this isn't the guy for me. I'm not, you know, I'm not coming back. So, so this, uh, Anyway, this is going off track a little bit, but I think it's very interesting. And I was thinking when about the flute thing and how you can, how rich it is and how subtle it is. And I thought you could, you could, you could describe this by saying that in the West, we are all about getting and doing, and uh, we are all deeply conditioned about getting and doing. In the West, the answer is what we want. The question we don't care about. Questions, yeah. Uh, the, the thing about a question is what's the answer? But this other understanding, which has uh, been central to, to many cultures and, and uh, times, uh, I'm sure, is uh, about the, the world of being. And to, to exist in one's flute playing in, at the level of being rather than of doing is to be able to be present in this world of changing subtleties in oneself. And it's so rich. It, it, it's a different, it's kind of being present. It's a world of being present rather than a world of, of, of doing. Uh, anyway, that was just. Uh, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, that, that that resonates for me. Several things come up in response. Probably the most pedestrian in one sense is that, um, you know, I've, I've, I've taken the suggestions of my spiritual teacher and experimenting with them over four decades now. And, um, and one of the products that I could never have predicted is uh, 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 will manifest in, in something as quotidian as going to the supermarket and deciding how many Brussels sprouts I'm going to put in the bag or, or how many carrots or, you know, how big an onion or something like that. So there's this, there's this capacity that I seem to have tuned into. I think it was always there but it's, I've tuned into it more and more, which is that I trust my, my intuition about, how, about what, how many Brussels sprouts or how big an onion, right? Uh -huh. And I don't even know, it's not like I'm, I'm thinking ahead, I'm not thinking ahead, uh, oh, for this dish I need X, Y, and Z. Uh -huh. It's more like um, I'll find when I get home and, and do the cooking that I have, gotten the exact right amount for the for the thing that I end up making 
Yeah. Now maybe that's confirmation bias. I don't. I don't know. But it doesn't feel like that. It does. It feels as if I'm tuning into some capacity that is not provided by the discursive mind. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and letting that um, and following that direction. I couldn't agree more. And it, it reminds me of my own example. Uh, my wife bought a little espresso machine a few years ago, and I never used it. But lately, I've started using it. And um, anyway, um, there's just a certain amount of water that it needs. And um, now I can just uh, I can just kind of fill up this little container, and something in me says that's enough, and then I pour it in. It's just right. Well, that is. And there's another couple of areas. To me, that's uh, very much what you're talking about. And, and to me, um, how I interpret that is to call it the intelligence of the body, let's say. There are these different kinds of intelligence in us. And uh, in, in the West, we don't know about them. We're not taught about them. We have the discursive, rational thing. That's what we, that's what we do. That's what we trust. But in our... You know, we have these other kinds of intelligence. Like, it's really amazing how accurate these things are. And you know, you get yeah. home, you have exactly the right number. I mean, sometimes I, uh, I, I sleeve quarters because I have a, a little apartment building and I have a coin-operated couple of washer and dryer. So I got to put quarters in these little sleeves. Mm -hmm. And now I can just grab quarters and my hand knows this is 10 quarters. And so I put four of those in there, and I have a, a sleeve of quarters. But it, it's just uh, there are there are truths in our bodies that we are cut off from, generally speaking. I say broadly speaking, in the culture we're we're not taught, but the body and or some kind of intelligence is quite exacting and, and kind of astonishing. Even it's really quite quite amazing. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I want to, I'll relate this back to uh, my Shakuhachi practice, and that figures largely in a lot of my attention lately. And one of the things my teacher has been doing with me is uh, focusing on, like, the lower back, the pelvis, and playing from there, mm. or keeping time from there. Mm. And... And again, this is one of these categories of experience where I can talk about it. I can intellectually explain the whole theory behind it, but that's all very different from the doing of it. And when I yeah. do that, a quality of energy and a quality of uh, uh, sound is able to come forth. And what's I found in this also it, Related and very interesting is how part of the uh, subtlety that uh, he's been working with me on involves micro movements of the muscles in the face. Mm. In fact, yesterday he was describing to me how he would make a shape of lips out of like clay and he'd try different materials so that he could like blow an airstream across the edge of the flute. And he says, whenever I do that, you know, I've tried different materials. I've tried copper. I've tried wax. Uh, and it just sounds very mechanical. And I've come to the conclusion that the, the living surface of the uh, lips uh, 
varies. And when it varies, then you get this, uh, uh, that comes into the sound. And so we, so even the head, even though we conventionally think of the head as the locus of the brain, the head is actually this locus of a great deal of subtle articulation that connects like to the emotional center because of all the, uh, uh, the faces like the, the organ by which emotions are often projected. And when you manipulate that, uh, from a body sense, then there's this, uh, nuance of energy that's able to be transmitted. Wow. And it has wow. nothing to do with uh, the, the, the shapes of the ideas in our head. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, I, I, I had an experience years ago that just shocked me. Um, he had a neighbor across the street who had this big you know, this sort of black dog that was a cross between a... Uh, uh, anyway, it was a big, long, narrow, strong dog with long legs it would never i mean it could run and it liked to chase a tennis ball and um i had this long driveway and the driveway went straight onto a street there was never any traffic on this little street and i would throw the ball and the dog would uh, chase it and um it would wear me out i could uh i'd always stop after 15 or 20 minutes but the dog would go on as long as i wanted to do this Polly was his name, K-P-O-L-Y. His owner was from Nigeria. So um, one day I came home, and at the top of my long driveway, there's a mail- mailbox, and I saw Polly down at the foot of the driveway, at least 100 feet away, maybe 150 feet away, just watching me. And I was standing there, and I reached into the mailbox to get my mail, and my hand was still in there, and suddenly an idea occurred to me. Oh, Polly's watching me. Maybe um, I'll just pull the mail out and make a gesture with my body that's, that communicates to him like game on. We got, we got the game on here. And so I conceived of this experiment in the moment, like with my hand on the mail in the mailbox, I'm going to start moving in the tiniest micro movement that I can possibly make on the way to taking a position in my body that will communicate to him that the, the game is on. And at what point will he notice? At what point will he read my body? That was my question. I'm going to start with a tiny, tiny, the smallest thing that I can do. And at some point in there, as I turn my shoulders and I, you know, get, he'll get it. He'll know what I'm telling him. So, okay, I start to do it and I, and I, I haven't moved and I'm thinking, boy, this is, this is kind of a quantum thing. Like I can't just start from nothing. This is, and I make the t- tiniest little thing and I'm expecting it's going to be, but the moment I made this tiny thing, Polly just exploded into a standing position, like just like, like exploded into attention, like jumped up and it was intensely looking at me. And that was so unexpected, it just hit me in the chest. I mean, the shock of that dog's thing just hit me, and it revealed in a very palpable, visible way the level of sensitivity that that animal had towards me. And, I mean, it was an unforgettable thing. And that experience, we all have it, but it's absolutely buried. Mm -hmm. 
it's absolutely buried in, in, in the kind of life we live. But what you just described about the flute and these subtle things, I don't doubt that uh, we are instruments of uh, really um, kind of sensitivity that, that is completely unknown to, uh, to our, our discursive Western mind. I mean, it must be known to people that are not, that they have to live in the, the jungle and they, they live that, you know, but um, it's fascinating that uh, it's just, I, that was just, I just had to share that. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Um, um, a couple things. Uh, first, um, watching a, a couple of years ago, um, I started to notice that Stuart's teacher, Koga Sensei, when he's playing, especially in performance, um, I would be usually able to sit close up enough to see this incredibly sensitive, like a fluttering of the small muscles all around the mouth hmm. and, and into the cheek. And I'd, I'd never noticed that before. Maybe I only just noticed it. Then, but I actually think he's, he's, he probably has upped his game mm -hmm. in this area along the way that he's, that Stuart is relating. He's getting instruction now. Mm -hmm. but, but the second thing is, um, I, I'm wanting to suggest, and, and I want your feedback on this, that, that what you're calling the intelligence of the body, and, um, and I completely agree with you about this, um, is related somehow to the aesthetic sense that you were describing earlier in this conversation mm. about as a, you know, you, as a child, you'd see that the taillight of a Lincoln yeah. one year versus the other year is just right versus not just right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and related and related phenomena. So, I mean, does that, does that resonate for you? And if so, how would you, I mean, so I guess we have to get older perhaps to be able to tune into the subtleties like you were doing with the dog mm -hmm. in the, in the uh, anecdote you just uh, related. Yeah. Um, does that make sense to you or um, uh, talk about that? Hmm. Well, I, I, uh, I'm willing to certainly accept that the, I, I, I wouldn't know where the intelligence of the body, the intelligence of the heart, where those things begin and end or overlap. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, it certainly seems to me that there is great, um, great aspects of our being as, as human beings that we are cut off from in the culture that we live in. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, if one is an artist, uh, you know, artist is one of those words. It's it's just impossible to figure out where it begins and where it ends, and mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a very mixed up situation if you want to be an artist in this culture. But uh, one is one is in a difficult position in this culture of uh, maybe not. I was going to say one's in a difficult position if one's the way one is sort of made uh, allows the intelligence of the body or the intelligence of the heart to be a kind of central force in one's life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it just turns you into a cook. Mm 
or maybe you can't become an auto mechanic if you love uh, or, or an athlete. I mean, I shouldn't say that we're up against it. It just, but uh, I think it's a, a, I think all of that's very real and very compelling and. Uh, I'm not. Sh- I, I'm not sure. I'm responding very well to your question, Rob. Uh, well, it was a pretty uh, unformed question because because this is a difficult area to discuss intelligently. But you yeah. are you were you were and are responding to it. I mean, it, it gets back in some ways to this question that um, I related earlier from our friend Ken McLeod about how how much overlap there is between the work of an artist and the work of a spiritual practitioner. So mm-hmm. a lot of overlap and similarity of, you know, uh, the uh, deployment of attention and intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, um, you know, there's uh, what's the uh, Robert de the uh, fourth way practitioner, Robert de uh-huh. A student of Uspensky, I think, primarily, uh-huh. uh, wrote a book called *The Master Game*. Right. And and in that book, um, Durop suggests that spiritual practice, he, he calls that the master game because it's it's sort of the generalist approach to what, for many people, they only go into one field with the kind of deployment of attention and intention mm-hmm. that we're discussing here. Does that, yeah. does that make sense? I like that. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, and, it, and if, you're, if you're a generalist in the sense that you're open to your attention and you're open to the promptings of, or the responses in oneself from a broader spectrum of one's being, mm-hmm. responsive to that, you're, you may have a little more trouble fitting yourself into a, culturally defined cubbyhole, you know, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate that for, for whatever reasons, um, my ability to sort of value my intuition was never challenged and it was never defined even, but I, I, uh, I owe something to my father, I'm sure. And, uh, but earlier you said something about how I tune into some quirky characters and so forth, which is absolutely true. And I think it has to do with this uh, being open to different kinds of impressions and different kinds of responses on a, on a broader spectrum. Uh, I'm not looking for the culturally approved uh, figure. Uh, I'm kind of open to surprise and that has led to some of the most amazing uh, connections that have happened for me over the years. Um, and, and there was a couple that I thought are wor- were worth sharing in this conversation. I was at a service-based function. They used to do something called Karma Kitchen where they, uh, they took over this restaurant in Berkeley called the Taste of the Himalayas on Sunday at lunch. And they would, they, the, uh, the Taste of the Himalaya cooking cooks would be in there cooking, but uh, everybody else in there were service-based volunteers, the waiters and the maitre d' and all that. And uh, they would have something called a community table where people 
could come in and sit at the community table. I would come in there and sit down, and I was sitting across from a woman who, of course, I didn't know, and we got into conversation, and uh, somehow or other got onto language, and turned out this woman was very savvy about language, and in fact, uh, she knew American Sign Language, and we talked a little bit about linguistics and American Sign Language and so forth, and uh, by and by, it turned out that she started telling me a story. And the story is that uh, by accident, she'd learned American Sign Language because she got involved in a class about theater, but it was theater for the deaf. She was a hearing person, but she took the class anyway because the teachers were supposed to be fantastic. And she fell in love with it because of the... Uh, the signing was so eloquent, the physical signing. And uh, mm -hmm. in fact, uh, it's a complete language. Uh, just visually, they do, they can do puns. They do all kinds of gradations of subtlety. It's a very full and complete language. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been Oliver Sacks who wrote about it. Somebody wrote about, the, the, uh, about this language. So she became, uh, she started working with the deaf and uh, she encountered, she came into this new job where she was going to be working with the deaf. And there was a, when she came into the space where the people were, and she noticed right away over in the corner a man, and their eyes met, and she looked at him, and she was struck by, as she put it, the intelligence in this man's face. And uh, she got a little bit of instruction from her, her new boss, and she walked over and sat down with them. And so she started trying to sign. He, she signed to him to sort of like, hello. And he just copied what she did. And pretty soon she figured out that this guy didn't really know. <clears throat> he was copying, but he didn't know what these things meant. Hmm. And so she struggled and struggled and, and found out she couldn't connect. She, he, was, he didn't know what he was doing. <clears throat> For some reason, he was in there. He was deaf. He didn't know what the signs meant. In fact, she eventually understood <clears throat> the man had no language. He had no concept of language. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a hard idea to even explain to anybody. Uh, somebody that doesn't know that the the sounds make a name, that the name is something. He, he saw lips moving. He didn't know what lips moving meant. He saw people making hand gestures. He didn't know what that meant. But somehow he was still there, uh, alive. It turned out he was 25 years old, of Mexican origin. And uh, she took it on because she wasn't smart. <clears throat> she hadn't been educated enough to know as the academics know, that if you haven't acquired language by the time you're 12 years old, there's no chance. Well, there's two, she said, there are two schools of thought. One of them says, if you haven't acquired language by the time you're 12, that's it, or maybe 15, or, and that's it. A absolutely no chance after that. Well, this guy was already 25, but she didn't know that she couldn't help him. So for weeks, week after week, she spent hour after hour with this guy. And he could somehow he stayed with her and he kept copying and the, the whole thing became more and more frustrating. 
but eventually cut to chase. Susan Schaller broke through, and this guy got it. In one moment, he got that this thing that she did meant the shape of a letter, which was C-A-T. In one blinding moment, he understood language, This what it is. And he just broke down, uh, sobbing. Uh, mm-hmm. So the thing is, what she did was impossible. This was not possible. Turned out, when I heard this, I was sitting across from her, and I thought, what are the chances that I would be sitting here hearing this story, the only comparable story is Helen Keller in the world. And she's telling me the story. Oh my God. So of course I had to interview her. (laughs) So I have this amazing interview with Susan Schaller. She had written to uh, Oliver Sacks and Oliver says, you have to write a book and I will write the introduction. And there is a book called a man without language. Uh, But that was just one of those things, sitting down across from a stranger, following this little thread, and this unbelievable singularity was sitting there. Um, so that's one story that I would call quirky. Then there's one more. These are the two, in my opinion, most amazing. If you want to hear the other yep. one. Oh, please. Okay. So uh, I'm friends with Sam Bauer, who founded something called the Green Museum, which is no longer really functioning. Sam thought it would be nice to have a uh, online museum to uh, get environmental artworks around the world because you can't stick them in a gallery and they can't sell them. But for for some years, the Green Museum had uh, a tremendous uh, list of, of environmental artworks that could help the environment that people had used great creativity to dream up and so forth. And I... Uh, interviewed Sam. It's a great interview. It's a very interesting guy. And I'm interested in water, and I ask him uh, some things about in the environment. Were there any artworks dealing with water? So he said, well, there's a woman, Betsy Damon is her name, and she is completely uh, is spending her whole life around water. She's brilliant about water and how you have good ways to uh, clean water up, things that Rudolf Steiner had studied, all kinds of stuff. So anyway, I, I interviewed Betsy Damon. She, Betsy was interested in sacred springs, for one thing. When she went to China, uh, she couldn't get any funding from any grant organizations. They didn't want an American woman. They weren't going to pay money to send someone to China. She finally found a private donor to, to give her five grand and she went to China and started talking to people about water and she would talk to villagers. So it turned out that these villages that had been around forever, the villages, uh, the villagers had knowledge of the spring over there is good for arthritis and that spring over there is good for this other thing and that spring has been poisonous, stay away from it. And there was all this very specific knowledge that went back hundreds of years and she began to gather all this stuff, and she wanted to do some public works in China around water. And so she met some hydrologists and people in China that were part of the system. And anyway, word got around uh, 
about this American woman who was working with water. So uh, in a one of the big cities, uh, 10 million, I forget the name of it, they were going to build a big, uh, a big, uh, they were going to do a big thing with the Yangtze River that came right through town. The Yangtze was pretty polluted. And they wanted to do something to help uh, clean up the river. And they'd drawn up a big plan. And they got word about this American woman. And they said, get her down here and see what she thinks about our plan. So Betsy Damon gets down to Chengdu. I think that's the city, Chengdu. And uh, there she is with these uh, uh, Chinese officials. They're getting ready to build a multi-multi-million dollar work on the uh, Yangtze River, and she, she looks at it, and they say, well, what do you think? And she says, um, well, i got to be honest. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work. Well, I mean, she's a non-governmental. She's on her own. She's a private citizen, and they're like the officials. And for some reason, they wanted – they wanted her to, to give a thumbs up, and she, so they said, look, will you tell us what you would do? I mean, you say this isn't going to work, well, why don't you design something for us? So she did, and they built it. And to me, that's one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard, that this, this woman on a $5,000 grant from private funds goes to China, ends up meeting with the officials in Chengdu, and they throw out their multi-million dollar plan and build something that she designed on the Yangtze River. So that's the second, to me, most amazing story of the land across. That is. I mean, uh, what, I, what I also appreciate about both of those stories is that they, it, it really is artistic, uh, <laughs> you know, that they're, that, they're working with the medium of life and creating these very uh, unlikely outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there's something wonderful about quirky. I've got one more story, one of my more quirky ones. Uh, my, my good friend, John Toki used to have a place called Leslie Ceramics in Berkeley that was uh, been around for 50 or 60 years in Berkeley. They sell, um, Everything that a potter needs, a clay artist. They sell the clay, the glazes, the tools. They Anyway, uh, John would every now and then have open houses, and John liked uh, works and conversations, and he would always give me a table where I could set out my magazines, and he'd have a couple hundred people would come in there. With, he would have maybe five or six artists would have tables there. and uh, So I'm sitting there at my table one day, and... Uh, this woman comes heading my way, and I thought, mm, okay. Uh, I felt a little bit, you know, looking at her, I thought, I don't know about this. She comes right up to my table. She has a four-by-five photograph, and she says, you should do a story on me. She throws this thing down in front of me. <laughs> well, my my automatic response was, uh, well, my automatic response was quite judgmental. My automatic response was not a chance in hell, you know. <laughs> that was that was my automatic judgment. But my some other part of me that wasn't so stupid uh, said, "Well, 
okay, why don't you sit down here with me and tell me why I should do a story on you. So mm -hmm. she sits down, and so she starts to tell me, well, uh, I was... I learned how to do stained glass. I was almost out. I'd almost graduated from the Art Institute in San Francisco, and I needed one class. And um, I just thought, well, I'll take the easiest class. I took a class on making stained glass windows, and I really liked it. And she said I was putting myself through school by doing uh, by working in a topless joint in North Beach, and I was slinging drinks in a topless bar, <laughs> and. Uh, also, uh, anyway, I, I got my degree and I started doing stained glass. And um, one day I, and I got married and one day my husband, uh, oh, she says, yeah. Um, and one day I got on my motorcycle and I drove up to Seattle on my motorcycle. I thought, well, wait a minute, motor, you drove a motorcycle up to Seattle? What kind of motorcycle? Harley. So anyway, this woman uh, was slinging drinks in a topless bar. She drove her riding Harley Davidsons around. And uh, she said, you know, uh, I'm Italian, Sicilian, Sicilian Jewish. Uh, and uh, I used to work at uh, Stacy's bookstore in downtown San Francisco. I was like 15, but, you know, we didn't have much money. And there was a bookstore around the corner. And I went in there, and for some reason, I pulled this book off, the little thin book by a guy named Thomas Merton. <laughs> and um, I don't know why, but, you know, I really like that book. And uh, every now and then, I'd read one page. And eventually, um, I ended up at a glass conference like 30 years later in Kentucky. And I thought, wait a minute, wasn't Thomas Merton at a at a monastery in Kentucky. So I called up this monastery, Gethsemane, and I said, is Thomas, was Thomas Merton there? there? And they said, yeah. And uh, she said, well, could, is he buried there? Yeah. Well, could I come and see his grave? Yeah. You know, you're calling it a good time because we're going to have uh, a special little four-day retreat. You want to go to it? She said, well, how would I get there? I'm in Louisville. Oh, we'll have one of the brothers drive over and pick you up. So anyway, this woman who had come over to my table had this whole story she's laying out. After about, I don't know, about two minutes, I knew I was going to interview her. And it's one of the most amazing stories uh, I've run across, uh, how she ended up at Gethsemane finding all these old stained glass windows that they'd ripped out of the church. And she got, uh, she, anyway, long story short, anyway, that, that's, that's enough for that story. I mean, it's an amazing story. And it's, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that was, just blew my mind that, uh, and it presented itself in such an un, unpromising way. I mean, it was like, it could, it could hardly have been less promising. And if I hadn't asked her to sit down, I would have completely missed it. How much in life is just like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a uh, interesting point. And that, that, that kind of ties into a, a question I had that 
I think in one of the pieces that you had written, or uh, I think I saw it, uh, your description that was in a bio online that um, one of the questions that fascinated you is in the world of art, you know, whether or not artistic expression can transmit something of the numinous or something, uh -huh. something of the beyond. Uh -huh. And that's to me tied to this question because it's like we have to be in a certain place in order to have access to that, to be a vehicle for that to flow forth into this realm. It doesn't, yeah. and, it, and it clearly doesn't happen when we are localized in our a judgmental mind because yeah. that's all about closing off opportunities. Yeah. So may, may, maybe you could talk a little bit about what are the conditions that you see for both yourself, uh, an artist practicing a particular art, to hold the opening for that possibility. Mm. Boy, that's a that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know, I think I think it it uh, boils down to not settling for anything less than it's real. Thirty. Not settling for anything less than finding real meaning in one's life. Now, how do you hold out for finding real meaning? That's tough because, you know, all the pressures of life, having to pay your rent, uh, allow yourself to get channeled into some kind of life that uh, the forces are so powerful that uh, channel us into ways of living that cut off the possibility of having this uh, sense of real meaning. I sometimes think that the people who call themselves artists, who try to be artists, are people who have a, who still have a living feeling of this uh, wish to have a, a real life, a life of real meaning, to have one's real life. And of course there's no, uh, there's no uh, degree offered in uh, finding one's authentic self. Uh, that they, they, there's no course for that. Oh, actually, people people uh, tout courses all the time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Now there's a whole industry. But. Well, you know, I, mean, I guess I was thinking, you know. Yeah. Oh, you mean authentic, I mean authentic <laughs> ones? I take it back. I take it back. No, I, I, we're being, we're, we're being uh, no, I know, naughty. I know. No, I think of the old uh, a sort of uh, categorical thing. You can be a doctor, lawyer, chef, you know. Uh, but if you're going to go to uh, University of California, you're probably not going to sign up for the uh, path, the uh, degree in becoming an authentic self. <laughs> Which reminds me, I have a great story connected to UC Berkeley, but. Uh, uh, I don't know what 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 uh, gives you the uh, tenacity and the help uh, to to hold out for uh, finding a real a real life. Uh, I don't know if that's a very good response to your question, but I mean I don't know how you do that. You either are lucky and persistent, or I don't know. I mean it's I think it's been. Uh, Something has been very fortunate for me to have held out uh, and not uh, to have 
been forced into uh, some kind of a job or something that allowed me to pay my rent. I'll, uh, I'll just jump in here to say today a customer came into our spiritual bookstore and talking about uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic said something like uh, his prescription for dealing with that was patience and persistence. Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe that's not yeah. irrelevant here. I think that's putting it very well. Yeah, yeah, both, both, both. And, 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 and one needs help, at least speaking for myself, I was fortunate. I mean, I did get encouragement here and there and help. Uh, yeah, one has to be persistent, no question about it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in the midst, as you say, I mean, we have, we have all these demands and commitments in our lives, so many of which are, are culturally prescribed. Yeah, that we, you know, have various that we feel like that we may feel like we have um, a need to um, fulfill. But that doesn't mean that we have to let go of the authenticity of searching for what's real. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, you know what, you guys, you two, both of you strike me as living examples of the combination of creativity and persistence that you have created something. I've never been to your, your shop, but uh, this is a wonderful thing that, that you've created. You must feel very fortunate. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've gotten to do it for 17 and a half years. Not sure if it's going to continue into the 18th year <laughs> at this point. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's up to the universe, but um but absolutely, and and then along the way we came upon this um, at first radio show and then radio show slash podcast format where we get to talk to people like you, and it's been incredibly beneficial to me personally for my own um, quest to uh, manifest the most authentic me I can be um, because. Uh, I've come to realize how much the interaction with other people who have very different points of view enriches my own um, and enlarges my own perspective. Mm. That's very important, I've mm -hmm. found. Well, I feel that I feel a deep kind of sense of relationship with what I what what I know about what you're doing because. And I know that just based on what you said, I completely understand what you just said. Yeah. Uh, it, one has to feel so grateful to have, uh, you know, have been gifted with enough creativity and enough help and enough whatever to come up with something with, which you've done and which I've done where you've sort of defined a, a project and that's allowed you to have this amazing, rich experience year in and year out. And that's how the magazine has been for me. It's just an incredible vehicle. Well, I don't make any money, but... Uh, no, nor do we. <laughs> we. We resonate together on that. Yeah, I, I... But, you know, but, you know um, I mean, I think, I can't remember if this was in the conversation we had before this one, um, just private conversation. But um, I think we, you, we spoke about how, um, or you spoke about how you had this, this uh, 
powerful sort of um, acknowledgement from the universe that someone was willing to support what you were going to do. And, um, and you know, when we set up the bookstore, we, we did it not just the two of us, but with a, a dear friend who was a Buddhist monk for, for a number of years and has been a Quaker now for, for many years. But he long had the ambition to do a spiritual bookstore. I had just finished uh, a stint of getting my PhD and teaching at Berkeley briefly, and um, and I was ready to do something something else. And so we decided to do this spiritual bookstore and tea shop. And so our friend, who had worked in bookstores for many years, thought it was going to take six months just to get the door open. So we signed the lease. We signed a lease. We signed a lease. We were then gone for a week because we had a previously committed trip. We came back and we wanted to get the store open. This was in mid-October. We wanted to get the store open for Thanksgiving. So it would be open on Thanksgiving. And our friend, who's, who with his spiritual training never said, you're crazy to us. He just sort of tacitly <laughs> sat back to see what would happen. <laughs> in fact, um, you know, there was a whole list of things that had to do and they had, uh, that we had to do. And one thing was predicated on the finishing the previous thing. But in five weeks, we opened the store and, and he, was, he was amazed. And, and I was amazed because, because all these governmental entities and the workers we had to come in to, you know, redo the floor and blah, blah, blah. Um, it all just happened bang, 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 yeah. bang, bang. Yeah. So to me, that was this, that was the kind of um, uh, confirmation that we were onto something yeah. for us, yeah. for our community. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, there's something, I mean, apparently that, that's uh, apparently that's kind of how it often seems to work when it's the right thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, it felt as though that uh, a higher energy was moving through and a vortex was formed and everything aligned because there was a magnetism that caused lots of different threads in the universe to become aligned such that um, this, energetic center could be born and yeah. yeah and you know we we don't know how long it's supposed to last or any of those things nothing lasts forever but uh it's been it's been an energy source uh in the community in the sense that you know people will walk in this off of the street who may not even have any spiritual training but they'll just feel different they'll yeah and they will feel different yeah and the space has been blessed we've had many uh Great teachers come through the space. We've uh, had, you know, light, you know, friendships and uh, just many different people in the community uh, coming through. And um, uh, we do tea tastings there. And you know, it's a it's a, um, a lovely little corner. And it's not, yeah, is it in Occidental? No, it's in uh, Sebastopol. Oh, it's in Sebastopol. Okay. In okay. downtown Sebastopol, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, they have a great bookstore there. I forget, is it still there? Copperfields, Copperfields, you mean? Yeah, I think. And they have that East West Cafe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's we're, still we're there. Just down the street from the East West Cafe, so block and a half away. 
Did you ever know a guy named James Seba, Cal Seba? No. I think so. Yeah, well, he was an acup Chinese sort of medicine acupuncture guy. He was the first American to go to China when China mm -hmm. opened up to, to study in China. Hmm. I interviewed him, too. But, uh, wow. Anyway. Um, well, it, it is interesting how people feel something. I remember going into a little rug store on College Avenue in Oakland, and uh, uh, there was something in there. And it turned out that there was a guy, a Tibetan guy, who Manush, Manush, I don't know his last name, but he taught a kind of, it's called Brema. He taught a, a type of body work called Brema. Yeah, we've heard of that. Yeah. And, <clears throat> I never met Manoush, but uh, the people in there, they had a quality. And one of the things about Brema, apparently, <clears throat> is that when you're working on someone, you you really make a very uh, definite effort to be present in oneself so that you have this sort of double arrow of attention so that you're – and, you know, when I felt something when I walked in there. I think everybody did. And so I think what you're saying is a very real phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think when the energy is set with a, a kind of intention and the the location, like our bookstore has has a purpose. I mean, it's not that we won't sell, you know, books of you know that are not the highest of the high uh, in terms of we're not editing the message, but uh, yeah. it, it's the the message is that there's many. It's called many rivers, and there's there's many rivers to one ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I want to jump in here and say that, that, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, just this one particular issue of, of works and conversations now. And, um, and there's a, uh, there's a quality about this magazine that, I mean, I've seen a few other things that, that sort of approach the direction that you take it, but it, I think it's the mo it's one of the most unique magazines I've ever seen. And um, uh, I mean, partly it's it's the conversations that you and length often lengthy conversations that you include these days. Lengthy yeah. conversation is often understood to be um, not what people want. I don't think that's true, but it's true for people who don't want to <laughs> listen to lengthy conversation. Nevertheless, or, or read lengthy, lengthy pieces, but um, but there's always there's still an audience for that. Number one, for the right person, and also the artwork um, in the you know both photography and and reproductions of of art and stuff like that is often um, really quite um, uh, it's so unusual to see this combination of, of uh, unusual art. I mean, it's, it's an extensively illustrated magazine. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, you know, the San Francisco Art Institute subscribes, um, and the reason I bring that up is because their periodicals librarian sent me a note saying, um, out of our 201 titles of periodicals we subscribe to, Works in Conversation resonates 
in the most uh, singular way of any of them. Oh, nice. That, that, um, nice. that is high praise. That is. Uh, <laughs> well, those are the little things that have kept me going. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, no, it's, uh, you know, I got a subscription from Harvard, and I, um, that, that helped me out. I got, you know, I do have several top flight subscribers, and the reason for them subscribing is uh, because my interviews are all all become not only art historical documents, but they're usually probably the best interview. If I inter interviewed an artist, it's probably the best one out there because I give it so much space and I kind of dig in a way that most people don't. Right. And and so they they uh, it's a cultural service in that regard. Uh, because these interviews are all online. Yeah. And uh, I know curators always, if they're doing a, an exhibit of some artist, they'll, they'll check and they'll read that interview. Uh, but it's, it's uh, I, I've never felt comfortable saying I am an artist. I don't care whether I say so or not, but the truth is I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. So the thing that means is it's the entic, I think, the entic, yeah. right? E etic, so, right. Which is the, etic. It's E-T-I-C. That's etic. the internal one? No, that's the external one. The emic is the internal. That's the emic. Yeah. I yeah. think that I'm coming from the emic side. Right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You, absolutely. So, you know so when I talk with artists, I know, I know yeah. them. They know me. We can talk. You know, you, uh, you mentioned something that uh, made me think uh, about, you know, there was a piece on aesthetic thought where you, you had interviewed um, this gentleman, Rapsong Rapke, who is a yes. psychologist and a, a, a Galukpa, uh, a Tibetan practitioner. And yes. the thing that I, I found interesting, the connection, the reason it came up just now is that the, you talked about space. And, um, you know, I think about you know, my, the few drawing classes I've ever taken, the, you know, the concept of negative space always uh, uh, kind of stays with me. But, you know, what comes through in, like, the conversations that you have is that you're holding a space. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's described very lucidly in that particular interview, uh, uh, partly in the context of therapeutic work. Yeah. That if you can hold a space without judgment, yeah, and allows uh, someone to be who they are and allow their being to just emerge in that space, then by holding that space, uh, something comes together or something can be conveyed of the authenticity of that person. And I, and I, and I, I think that, that I get the sense that, you know, that is your approach with interviewing that you, you you hold a space for someone and that's the art i mean that's really the uh the the magic is not not to bring in something well yeah i i i try to do that thank you and and you would you would both understand that because you do that as well and uh um <clears throat> love saying rap guy um, well, that was remarkable for me to, to meet him and talk with him. And yeah, he's a deep practitioner. I'm sure he's 
he's pretty well along on the path himself. And he spoke of the spaciousness of the mind. That is, if one is able to quiet the mind so that one is uh, available to the spaciousness of the mind, sometimes a spark can be seen. And that spark is this healing thing. Of course, um, he speaks about it specifically in the context of this uh, famous psychoanalytic analyst named Bion, Wilfred Bion, who's, I think, dead, a British guy who I think grew up in India. And uh, Bob Sang is, is, uh, follows Bion a lot, but he, he talks about the, uh, the very demanding, a very difficult practice in his, in his profession of keeping this uh, non-judgmental quiet space uh, and that to the degree that it's possible to keep that, something can emerge from a, from a deeper intelligence. It's, it's, it's not the prescriptive kind of diagnostic uh, sort of uh, model that one has in one's head, but it's a kind of unformed thing that calls upon the whole, the whole mind. It's very beautiful. You know, my, he, I let him edit the interview and, I think he, he, he made it a little more difficult for readers because in a couple of places where he described this, it was more direct and, and simpler. But when I let him edit it, I think he, he wanted to be more precise in exactly just how this should work. And it's a little harder for a reader mm-hmm. to, uh, to, if you have to read it a couple of times when you see this is exactly <laughs> what it has to be. Well, that, that, that makes sense. I was impressed with his pre- precision of language. Yes, yes, yes. He, I gave him a, a, a chance to do that. And he was very good in any case, but he's a lovely, lovely man, wonderful person. But, but well, the, I think I think it's... Well, you go ahead. I, oh, good. Actually, I, I was going to say that the equation, you know, to kind of branch out of that to what we were talking about with art again, the equation of that spaciousness with the aesthetic thought or aestheticism in general, the truest aestheticism is not is about the willingness to hold that space. There's something there. I, I you know, it's just like I don't even I can't even do much more with it than just sit with that uh, equation because it, it it there's something in it that I find very useful. Thank you. I think there's something. <clears throat> it's actually probably mysterious. This this space between us. Mm. Uh, from person to person. This is mysterious territory. Um, and uh, I think, no doubt, there's... Uh, if that space can be held in a certain way, it, it must have a, a subtle power of evo- evocation or something. I mean, it, it, we're in a realm it's hard to find the words for. Mm. But there's something real there. Well, you, you mentioned earlier uh, that I, I seem to recall that um, you, that you were looking for um, the possibility for for a, to be surprised, surprise arising uh, in in conversation. That that's certainly one thing that one aspect of a good conversation. If I'm surprised by something, that's a wonderful product. Yeah. There's also, you know, 
the aspect that I think we've been sharing a lot through this conversation, which is a kind of resonance where where there's not a, you know, some conversations we, we've had for this podcast, it's like pulling teeth to sort of for, mutual understanding is like pulling teeth. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's, that's not bad, but it's, but it's a more interesting conversation when there's an easy flow. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. that's, that's, um, that's something that, that, that's another aspect of a good conversation, it seems to me. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, I find it's um, occasionally, I know sometimes people ask me, oh, what, get, give me some tips on doing an interview. And, um, you know, it's true. I try to, I uh, do try to hold space and, and I, I don't know what will appear. But on the other hand, my intuition Generally speaking, I don't interview someone unless I, my intuition is that I, I'm attracted to something. I, I suspect mm -hmm. there's gold hidden there, maybe not very deeply hidden, but I think there's gold there, so I want to interview this person. So in a sense, I'm looking for gold. I don't know where it is, but occasionally, not very often, someone will <clears throat> go off in a direction. <clears throat> And pretty soon I may know very well, I'm just really not interested in this direction and I don't want to take up space with this. So I will, I will pull a person back. There's a dance between, yeah. you know, the direction and letting the direction unfold. So there's this dance, uh, I find, you know. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's completely fair to let, to let that guide, you know, your participation at least in the conversation. I totally give myself that permission. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we do too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's true, but I mean, in general, that's not unlike what we were talking about earlier, where uh, what you were what you were calling the intelligence of the body, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, knowing what's what's right, what's enough, what's wanted more of, etc. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And it's coming from a feeling sense, not not a not probably less that less than about uh, a analytic sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, if you've done much, I don't know if either of you have done much sort of hands-on work like carpentry or anything. Mm -hmm. um, I've done my share, and truth is, the body is amazing. Um, the body can uh, uh, sight. Sight can see what's just a little bit off. I mean, if you're if you have a little bit of training. I mean, if you're I've done tons of photography. I can see stuff. Uh, it's a trained eye. I mean, a musician has a trained ear. These are all faculties of the body, I think. Mm -hmm. And they they can they can. There's a kind of uh, capacity there that's just kind of amazing to the ordinary mind, I think. Well, in my 20s and 30s, I did uh, I made a living uh, doing um, pre-pressed lithography, and okay. and that was a, a very physical uh, engagement with the world because it was all about creating images which are then which were then you know the negatives of which were then physically pasted onto um, 
uh, a piece of paper that you would then expose you would expose a light sensitive uh, over a light sensitive uh, printing plate. So um, so I had a long engagement with that, and I and I still have all kinds of habits in my in my physical body about um, dealing with the most mundane things like a tape dispenser. Uh -huh. Something like that, yeah. Um, which, um, which I note that other people simply don't, you know, that 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 that's the product, that's or that's one consequence of, of that long experience. There are many others, of course. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I totally get what you're saying about um, how the body gets trained. Yeah. 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 So we we have a. Uh... Just about uh, just a few minutes left now. We we have this this conversation has gone very quickly. It's, it's just always a good sign of uh, uh, at least for us of a good time. But uh, you know, if, should anyone be interested in like uh, finding out about works and conversations, uh, is and there, or contacting you personally? Yeah, is there any uh, locus they can they can go to? Now they can go to my website. You know, for one thing. <clears throat> you know, conversations.org. Mm -hmm. Pretty easy. Um, I can make my email address available to you guys, or you can add it somehow. Okay. Yeah, we, we can, can put it we can when we post, post the podcast. We'll, we'll yeah put put it there. There's a way to put it there so that uh, uh, robots don't grab it and give you a bunch of spam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which is a consideration, I guess, we have to pay attention yeah. to these days. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I really appreciate our conversation. It's 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 uh, uh, it's really a treat talking with you both. And well, well, ditto, and it's been a a treat for me as well to uh, to engage with uh, the magazine. That there's um there's you know pieces in there that I'm like the conversation with Lewis Hyde that I started and haven't finished and want, and are intrigued by. So um, so plenty of plenty of stuff. Oh yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff. Lulu's side's fascinating, fascinating. Right. right, but thank you so much yeah. for joining us today on the Mystical Positivist. It's been delightful, really. Thank you, uh, Rob, and thank you, Stuart. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Richard Whitaker about the nature of aesthetic thought the connection of the numinous and artistic expression, and the exquisite sensitivity of the human instrument when unmediated by conceptual association. Richard Whitaker is the founding editor in 1998 of the magazine Works and Conversations. He is also the West Coast editor of Parabola magazine. His connections with art go back over 40 years, including photography, ceramics, painting, and sculpture. Next on The Mystical Positivist, Hokai Diego Sobel returns to join us in conversation with Tibetan Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod. Hokai Diego Sobel is an instructor in the Shingon esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana, who studied under the private tutelage of Ajare Jomyo Tanaka. In 1999, he founded the Mandala Society of Croatia. Since 2012, he has focused on mentoring individuals into, to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray learn to meditate, and those who meditate learn to pray. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Ken began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. 
He moved away from both the teacher-centered model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Tune in for that show on Saturday, June 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.